Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Heavenly Father, we we come and, Father, I'm just thankful. I'm thankful that in a crazy year where a whole lot of things didn't go the way any of us planned or thought, that you continue to keep us on course, that the things which you had laid upon our hearts, the things that your word had guided us to do and to invest in, Father, that you continue to move the ball forward, that you continue to advance things in the midst of a crazy time. And Father, we're just thankful. We're thankful for your help. I'm thankful for the way in which you provided people and provided for your people and the way in which you continue to care for your church. Father, we pray that as we head into the end of the year, Father, I pray for those who are sick, who are sick, would you, would you heal them? Uh, would you give them um, just perseverance? Father, would they know your presence even as they feel in, isolated and, and alone? Father, for those who are suffering and away from family this holiday season, would you comfort them? Would, they, would, you, um, would you just convince their hearts that you are by their side? that you are near to the brokenhearted. Father, would you, uh, would you lift the countenance of our faces and would you give us a great hope for the, thing, the days ahead and the, the years to come, Father, as you, as you continue to build your church. Father, we pray all this for Christ and for his glory. Amen. We are in 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you've got your Bibles, would you turn there or your devices or wherever it is you want to look that up. Uh, we are getting to a... Well, uh, Famous, famous story in the life of David, David and Bathsheba. Talk about David, and there's two stories everyone knows. Everyone knows David and Goliath, and everyone knows David and Bathsheba. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times, right? And this was definitely the worst of times for David. And, uh, you know, when, this, when we started this series several months ago, many months ago at this point, uh, I had four or five different people say to me really quickly, man, I love David, but I just don't understand what happened with Bathsheba. How did, how did he get that far away. And there's a reality for us that we kind of shake our heads when we look at David and Bathsheba, because let's be honest, the Bible's pretty clear, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none who is righteous, no, not one. Uh, The heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Uh, Like the Bible's not vague on our our problem. And yet we look at David and we go, well, how did he get there, right? And so there's there's a reality for us that this is a, it's a stark passage. It's one that gets our attention and, and sometimes kind of rattles us. Tommy Nelson said this about this episode in the life of David. He says, what begins as a moment is going to snowball. It will end up directly affecting the death of his three sons, the corruption of Solomon in the same areas in which he fell. It will bring about the judgment on the kingdom, remove the Northern tribes that will be carried off into captivity. Then the South will take up their sin and also be carried off into captivity. Other than the the sin in the Garden of Eden, this is the single most disastrous act of God's people in all of history. And it started simply with a glance in the moonlight. See, this is a significant episode in the life of God's people and especially in David's life. But the great king, as good as he was, would never rule a kingdom with, with true peace and justice and righteousness. He couldn't bring lasting goodness to the nation. And so God would have to provide a future king, Jesus, that would come one day and he would reign in, in righteousness and with justice and with peace and wholeness. What we see here is that even a man after God's own heart still needed a savior. See, David's not, he, he wasn't a wild child. 
This is a guy who wrote much of the Psalms. He wasn't a rock and roller running out to the, on the party bus. This wasn't a guy who was a creeper with a list on the, the sex offenders watch list. This wasn't some celebrity with oversized glasses and $1,200 sneakers out on the, the Hollywood scene. This was a guy who was still the man after God's own heart who wrote much of the Psalms. He was a guy who very much was, uh, was, was a faithful um, warrior. He was a successful leader. Many of people would call him a faithful friend and yet, and yet he fell. Can I I give you an FYI? You and I are made of the same stuff this guy's made of. My my heart is no more holy than his was. My flesh is no more righteous than David's was. We're made of the same stuff. That's why 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Friends, you may be standing now, but you can fall. It says, take heed, pay attention, lean in, listen up. Don't shake your head at David as though this is foreign territory for us. And we're all sinners and sin always has consequences. So friends, let's lean in today. Let's lean in and see what we can learn from David's pain uh, so that maybe it'll save us from some of our own pain. Sound good? All right, 2 Samuel 11 says this, in the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, his servants with him and all Israel and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah But David remained at Jerusalem. It just so happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and said, and one said to him, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Dark story. It's it's fascinating to me how blunt the story is, how factual it is, how quickly it moves, how it moves from one verb to another and just details the action of what happens. But verse one, what we see is, uh, during the winter months, uh, oftentimes when there was a war going on, a battle at the time, it was really hard to get chariots and stuff across a hard territory. So in the winter, they would take a break if they weren't able to resolve the conflict during the winter. And then in the springtime, they would resume battle again. And so they would go back to battle. And so it talks about them resuming the fighting. And you notice it says, David sent Joab, he sent his servants, he sent all Israel. Everyone's going out to battle, but then there's a significant but right there, correct? But David remained. In Jerusalem. That's a warning light on the dashboard that that ought to get your attention. He was not where he was supposed to be when he was supposed to be there. And so he's he's going to be find himself in a difficult in a bad place. This was the humble shepherd boy. This was the king who had fought or the the humble shepherd boy who had fought Goliath. This is the, the, the king who had always led his troops out of battle. It's the one they're saying, Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. David was not afraid of battle. He wasn't afraid to go fight. He, he, even while the others were out killing and being killed, one person said, David stayed home this time and was, and was killing time. So while everyone else is out killing and being killed, he was killing time. The first thing we see with David is that he had sort of lost his course. David was aimless in this moment. He was purposeless. Our lives were meant to be aimed at something like an arrow pointed at a target. We were meant to live with a goal in mind and David had disengaged from God's mission in this time and he'd stayed home and when he should have been out of battle. Friends, the the best way to avoid temptation is not just to have a strong will to say no in the heat of the moment, but 
to have a strong cause to give your life to. We weren't intended to live life on the sidelines twiddling our thumbs. We were meant to be engaged in, a, in, in, in the battle. Sometimes the best defense is a good offense, isn't it? Sometimes the, be, the best way you can go and fight the battles ahead is to, to try to take more territory, to stay focused on that. When we, need a, we need a purpose that is greater than our pleasure. And David had relaxed, he'd set back, he'd become aimless, and he'd started catering to his own pleasure more than he was living on purpose for the Lord. And so David, because he's not living for a holy purpose, what happens then for us, and as it did for David, is we begin to drift in the direction of an unholy purpose. And we see that worked out in David's life. In verse 2, it says it happened. Right. Like, these things always just happen. No, it just so happened that David wandered out on a, in the afternoon and looked, and there was a woman. There was a temptation. And it never just happens. It always, uh, it always, trouble always seems to find us when we're in the wrong place at the wrong time, doesn't it? And so what you see here with David is late in the afternoon, it says, we see another problem. Late in the afternoon, David arose from his couch. Uh, well, it tells you something, doesn't it? I mean, if you're taking a nap late in the afternoon, you're rising from your couch, you're, you're getting up. David had just become lackadaisical. He began to, he began to relax. And friends, there's nothing wrong with a nap, but when, you, but when you slack off, you better watch your back because there may be, there may be a sign that you're drifting in, a, in an unhealthy direction. Now, some of us need a nap. Like some of you dudes work an awful lot and you need a break and you need a nap. But, but you need a nap when you're engaged in the mission. You need a gap, a nap when you're, you're, you're giving yourself to a purpose. When you're running after something, you need a break and you need to take a nap. When you're aimless and you're just drifting, it's not a good time to take a nap. And so what we see in David's life is he's gonna get himself in trouble. Jesus said, one who is faithful in little is also faithful in much. And so when you stop doing the little things right, you have a tendency to drift towards doing the big things wrong. That's the way that the, the things tend to flow. So David was aimless. He was also alone. <clears throat> it tells us David was up on the roof looking out over his kingdom. He's by himself. Uh, this is the ancient version of staying up late, uh, surfing the internet, and looking for a movie to watch when you're, when you're on your own in the dark. That, that's what David is doing here. And he's, he's out there by himself. Friends, we need spiritual community around us to help us stay on course. Friends and family create a buffer to keep us away from trouble. We're, we're meant to live life in community. The problem with David is all of his community is off fighting a battle. They're off at war and David's left home alone. And so in the midst of this, he begins to look out and find trouble. Proverbs 18.1 says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Uh, whoever isolates himself is seeking to fulfill his desires. And it says he drifts, it moves him in the direction of craziness. He loses all sound judgment. This is part of David's problem. His community is absent and he's alone. Next we see he's aimless, he's alone, he's also self-absorbed. He says, I don't need to go fight these battles anymore. Look at how much I've accomplished in a mere 15 years. He'd been ruling about 15 years at this time. We've brought peace to the land. We've got all kinds of security. We've taken over Jerusalem. We've built a palace. We're, we're, we're set up to build a temple for the Lord. We've got the ark. It's back in, in our possession. We've done everything that we need to do. Look at all that I've accomplished in a very short amount of time. Problem is self-confidence can be damning, isn't it? Can it? So he's looking and saying, look at what all I've done. Look at uh, this thing. And he'd had success in really every area. He'd had success in wealth. As an artist, he'd had success in war. He'd had success with women. He had multiple wives. He's thinking, I've created a kingdom I can run in my sleep. Um, David's 50 years old right now. He's, he's in midlife. Uh, what happens oftentimes in midlife? 
Guys begin to look and they see what all they've done and they've done it all, but they, they think, well, I need to somehow, I need to, I need to find a little bit more. I need to bring some excitement back. I need to do something to mix it up. I need to, I need to change it up. I'm tired of going off to war. I'm, I want a little bit of something for me. And David, as a 50-year-old, had multiple wives, but his wives were all 52. And so he begins to search and begins to look and he begins to wander out in a different direction. He's up on his rooftop and he begins to think that all of this stuff is out there for me. And so he's self-absorbed in the way he's approaching things. We also see that David's at ease. Um, he says he's out taking a walk. The, the word for walk there is a word that means it's almost like he's being carried along by a walk. It's just, it's just leisurely stroll. It's just casual, relaxed, just kind of chilling in the evening, feeling the cool of the breeze, checking out what's going on, taking a leisurely stroll. He's at the highest point in the city. He's overlooking all the goodness of his kingdom. Nothing better to do than that after his nap. But what we see here is that David's in a bad place. Let me ask you a question. Given everything we've seen here, is it any surprise to you that somehow Satan brings a temptation his way? That when he's aimless and he's alone and he's at ease and he's wandering around kind of in a self-absorbed state, it's amazing how often when we put ourselves in that kind of a position, the temptation just seems to find its way in front of us. And that's what you see with, with David. Friends, it's easier to avoid temptation beforehand than it is to resist sin in the heat of the moment. It's easier to avoid temptation beforehand than it is to resist sin in the heat of the moment. Romans 13, 14 says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. It says, make no provision for the flesh. It's saying, make no, pre- no, make no preparation for your flesh to go to work to in- inhabit your desires. Don't, don't, lay, don't, don't set a course towards a place where those things can be fulfilled. Instead, stop and so, that, so that you uh, can curb your desires. And friends, can I tell you what's most troublesome about the time in which we live? Um, we, our, world's, our world's turned everything on its head when it comes to this. You see, it used to be a noble thing to resist your desires. It used to be a noble thing to curb your desires, to keep them in check. It used to be a sign of character that you fought against the unhealthy desires that you assumed you had. But our world's reversed that and turned everything upside down. And now our world is saying the exact opposite, saying that your desires are good and natural and it's a noble thing for you to run in the direction of your desires. That you should trust whatever's on the inside and you should feed it. In fact, you should, you should pride yourself in it. And you should stand in those places and live honestly from your desires. And this is especially true in the area of sexuality. Our world seeks to empower sexual desire instead of resist it. We've turned it upside down. But Christianity says something the exact opposite. It says um, the Bible repeatedly calls us to resist external temptation that's brought about by our internal desires. See, sin corrupts us, and so there's something that's broken in here And it sets its eyes on things out there and it seeks to pursue them in order to gratify its desires, it says in Romans. James 1 says it this way, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Friends, that's why we call it temptation. There's a desire inside of us that's awakened and tempted to fulfill to fulfill itself outside of us. And that's, that's what we call temptation. And what we see here in the life of David and what we see in our own lives is there's, this, there's a gradual progression toward transgression which sets the stage for sin. 
That sin doesn't ever happen in isolation, but there's this gradual progression as we move in a direction that sets ourselves up to enter into sinful transgression. And so that's what we see in David's life. And uh, number five, uh, what, we're, what we observe here is that David was on the edge of an abyss. In verse two, if we look back at that, it says that he was on the, walking in the roof of the king's house and he saw from the roof a woman bathing and behold, the woman was very beautiful. See, his eyes fell on something out there that awakened desire that was in here and it began to go to work in David's life. Now, she's on the roof and he looks down and she's taking a bath and perhaps it just so happens that he sees her. Perhaps it was accidental that he stumbled upon this scene, but he intentionally took it all in, right? Like he intentionally, uh, the glance became a gaze. Like the, the first glance may have been accident, but the next one and the next one and the next one were, were very purposeful, intentional on his part. In fact, the Hebrew words here for beautiful, literally it's two words and it says it's beautiful to look at. And oftentimes when it talks about a beautiful woman, it would just use the first word beautiful. But here it's making a point. It's saying she was beautiful to, to gaze at, to stare at, to look at, to absorb. So now he's entertaining his desire. And he says he saw her and then he sent for her. Verse three, David sent and inquired about the woman and one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? This is Eliam's daughter. This is Uriah's wife. David asks his servant, he says, hey, who's the lady that's down there? And begins to inquire about her. And his servant, you can almost feel his servant kind of stepping back and looking at David like, hang on, bud. Uh, are you talking about Bathsheba? The, the daughter of your friend? The wife of your friend? This is... He's trying to, to, to help, to, to give him a warning and say, look, this is not just an object. This is not just some woman. Someone's gonna get hurt here, David, if you continue down this path. This isn't innocent. In fact, it's gonna sting not just one person, but multiple people. Friends, we have to remember that, that God's rules are, are not arbitrary and just imposed for, for his, uh, for kind of in a mean-spirited way. But ultimately, God's rules are here for our protection. They're here for our good. God's rules are here because they show us the, the direction to the most life-giving way to live for us and for those around us. They, they point us in the direction of flourishing and human goodness. And what, what his servant's saying here is, do you, do you recognize these people, who this is? See, uh, uh, this, this man, uh, Eliam, this was one of David's mighty men. If you skip forward just a few chapters, you'll see him listed as one of David's most loyal faithful warriors that he fought side by side with throughout his kingdom. Eliam was this, this friend that he'd been in the foxhole with, that he'd gone to battle with, and this is his daughter that David's talking about. And Uriah the Hittite, the Hittite was a warrior culture. Hittite meant, this was an immigrant man, but his name Uriah means the light of Yahweh, which means he, he had he'd changed his name to a Judaistic name. He had converted to become one of God's people. And so he's this warrior that's been converted, and now he's um, <clears throat> he's fighting alongside David. These are two men who are warriors who are loyal and faithful to David, who had fought by, beside David. They had each other's back in times of war. They were in the foxhole together. And yet David now is talking about <clears throat> Bathsheba, Eliam's daughter, Uriah's wife. And his servant's calling him out. He wants him to answer this question. David, is this not Bathsheba? your friend's daughter and your, another friend of yours' wife. And he's trying to get, put a check in front, of, <clears throat> in front of David. And so we call sin a transgression because it, it crosses a line. 
And here David's crossing the line. Sin, when it's conceived, gives, I mean, desire, when it's conceived, <coughs> excuse me, gives birth to sin. He's moving from internal desire to action now. Verse four says, David sent messengers and took her. She came to him and he lay with her. He's a man of cloud, isn't he? He's a, he's a guy who can send his people off to get her. And so this is a man who, he uses his power, he uses his privilege, he uses his position, he uses his, his prestige. He sends the fancy chariot to go get her, right? Like, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna send the limo out for this gal and I'm gonna bring her back. And he brings her back. There's nothing nice about this scene at all. Notice the verbs that's used to describe David's actions. It says, he sent, he took, he lay with her. It's just blunt and to the point. David's become a predator. This word he took um, back in 1 Samuel 8, uh, they, when, when the nation said that they wanted a king like all the other nations around them, God warned them. He said, look, if you get a king, let me tell you what's gonna happen. Kings take things. The king is gonna take your sons and daughters and send them off to war. He's gonna take your servants and make them his own. He's gonna take your lands and your prophets and he's gonna take part of that for himself. That's what kings do, they take. And that's human nature and that's what's gonna happen. It's the same word he took that's used here that, that God um, you warned them about back in 1 Samuel 8. And there's probably a reference here where it's saying, remember what I told you? This is what's happening to you now in this situation. It's also the same word used back in Genesis when Eve looked at the fruit. Remember God had provided everything that Adam and Eve ever would need, but he said, just don't eat the, the fruit of this one forbidden tree. And it says that Eve looked and then she took the fruit. It's the same word took that David had here. David looked and saw and he took the fruit of this woman. Now it's interesting that just like Adam and Eve had everything that, that they possibly could have needed, but sin somehow compelled them to want more. David had everything he needed, but somehow he wanted more, right? David had multiple wives. And David had, he, he had the ability to go and lay with, with lots of women and they were already within his household, but, but sin's never satisfied and so he wanted more. And so he looked and he took her. There's no love, there's no affection, there's no conversation, there's no friendship. It doesn't tell you anything about their feelings, anything about their dialogue. It simply is just this kind of blunt thing that happens. It says he just lay with her. He didn't even walk her to the door. At the end, it just says, then she returned home. And so she goes home and afterwards, David didn't follow up, he didn't reach out. And there's nothing there. And some of the older commentaries, they, they make it, as though maybe Bathsheba was bathing intentionally in front of him trying to entice David. But you really don't see any, any semblance of that in the text at all. What you see in the text is that David becomes a predator. And Bathsheba doesn't appear to be anything more than an unwilling victim of the king's sexual exploitation. And so after the counter, eventually she's got to reach back out to him. And so a month or so passes and it only refers to her as the woman. But her first words that she speaks in this entire passage are, I'm pregnant. And that's where things have progressed. Now, incidentally, isn't this what pornography does? Treats other people, humans, as objects that are merely there for gratification. It, it strips them not just of their clothes, but strips them of their humanity and their dignity so that they're there simply to gratify the desires of another. In a moment, it, it removes their, their past and removes their future as though this moment is all that matters and me getting what I want and taking what I want is things. And friends, we've, we've got to do better than to indulge our desires in that kind of a way. But that's what David's doing here. 
Now at the end of verse four, there's kind of this awkward parenthetical statement. It says, now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. That likely refers back to why she was taking a bath. And it seems like a really strange thing because you've got this scene that's this kind of lurid scene that's happening in Mensa. It's a very earthy scene. And all of a sudden you get this like side commentary note in parentheses that says she was purifying herself. Why is that there? Well, it's there because it's saying, look, she's pregnant now, but she wasn't pregnant then. And when it says she's purifying herself from her uncleanness, what it means was, what it means was she had had her period. And so because of that, she wasn't ritually pure and able to go to worship. So she was taking a bath to go through a cleanliness so that she was able to reenter society in, in, according to the law of Israel. And so because of that, the, the reason why it inserts that here to say is when she comes and says, I'm pregnant, this is clearly David's baby because she was not pregnant before David looked and saw her. And after David took her, she's now pregnant. That's why this is included here. And so as we, as we see this scene, what we need to understand is that David's caught. Now he has a decision to make, doesn't he? See, friends, sin always has consequences and there's grace, but some sins can't just be unwound. And so what we see here is that we're, when we sin, we're always gonna move in the direction of either cover up or repentance. Then anytime you sin, you, you have a choice to make. I'm gonna move in the direction of, of cover up or repentance. And there's a dividing line that's gonna push us in the direction. Which one of those do you think David's gonna take? It's not repentance. Um, look at verse, verse six. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab went, sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah, Uriah, remember the one who's Bathsheba's husband, has now come to David. Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked, how's Joab doing? How are the people doing? How's the war going? Then David said to Uriah, why don't you go down to your house and wash your feet? And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. See, instead of repenting and trying to set things right, uh, David's gonna try to cover up his wrongdoing by maybe if I bring Uriah home, he can sleep with his wife and they'll assume that the baby is Uriah's. And so I need to get him home as quick as I can. I need to get him in bed with her. I need them to consummate the relationship so that I can pretend as though this child is really his and not mine. And then I can escape the consequences of my sin. David's cover-up plan's apparently gonna have a plan A, plan B, and plan C. I don't know if he scripted them all in advance, but we're gonna see this kind of whole thing unravel. And it's this downward spiral that keeps getting becoming more destructive and implicating more and more people in his sin and in the consequences. So plan A, David brings Uriah home. He chats him up a little bit. How's Joab? How's the war? How are things going? You know, just chit-chatting a little bit away. He even sends a present home with him and says, hey, why don't you go run on home to that, that wife of yours? My friend, I'm sure you're tired. You've been separated from your wife. You're dirty. You know, take a load off, take a shower, clean yourself up, enjoy some, some time at home. Uh, he says, he uses this phrase, wash your feet. Uh, some scholars think wash your feet is kind of a slang euphemism for something that's a little more exciting than clean feet, if you know what I'm saying. And so there, there, there's probably a kind of a hint that direction, but he's saying, look, go home to your wife. Why don't you just enjoy yourself there? Verse nine though, it says, but Uriah slept at the, king's, at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. And now David's confused. Like, look, if I couldn't keep my hands off your wife, why can you keep your hands off of her? Why, why did you stay here? He stayed there. So now David's gonna kind of up the ante and go a little further. In verse 10, he says, when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a long journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark of Israel and, and of Judah dwell in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are all camping in the open field. Will I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife 
as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Do you see, you see what's happening? Uriah's being faithful where David was not. Uriah looks and he says, look, if, if, if my men that I fight with are, are sleeping in tents and they can't be with their wives and if they're fighting the battles of the Lord and they can't be at home and they're not enjoying the, the good things of the king's palace and they're not being able to sleep with their wives, then I'm not gonna do that either because my heart is, is, is aimed at a purpose of, of God's mission, of doing the right thing. And my, my heart is still with my men out in the battlefield. I'm not gonna come home. Now, where, where should David's heart have been? His heart should have been with his men out in the battlefield. Where should David's aim have been? It should have been to carry on the mission of the Lord and to be fighting the battles of the Lord and out doing the things he did. But David was at home. This is a direct rebuke and Uriah unintentionally is, is really taking a, a stab at David here. Here's what's interesting to me is Uriah's reply should have cut David to his core, shouldn't it? Like it should have stopped David in a track. His heart should have sunk and he should have said, oh, that I were as faithful as Uriah. That's, that's what, the way my heart should beat. But Uriah is gonna be faithful where David would not. So um, he presses on <clears throat> to his next plan. Then Uriah said to David, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So David's like, well, I gotta think of something else. Let me, why don't you stay one more day? And David invited him and he ate in his presence and he drank so that he made Uriah drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord and he did not go down to his house. So Dev, now David says, well, maybe I just need to get his defenses down a little bit. Let me load him up with some booze uh, and then, then I'll send him home. And surely, surely then he'll, he'll go ahead and enjoy, uh, enjoy his wife. Uh, it's interesting, David says three times to Uriah, hey, go down to your house. Go down to your house. For a guy who, who should be awfully busy running a, running a kingdom, this guy's really intent on getting this dude home, isn't he? Um, cover up can make you do crazy things. So now David resorts, so Uriah refuses to go again and David resorts to plan C. He's going to the nuclear option now. In verse 14, it says, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Man, this is cold. He, he, he writes a note to Joab plotting Uriah's end and he sends it in the hands of Uriah. So Uriah is gonna carry the message that, that ends up getting himself killed because David trusts him. He says, look, this guy's so faithful. I can even, he's not gonna read the letter that I give him. He's gonna deliver it, it even to his own end. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah at the front where the hardest fighting is and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah the place where he knew that there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out <clears throat> and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among, uh, among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. In the rest of the chapter, it mentions Uriah died five times. This is the point that I want you to understand is David is a murderer. David sent this man to his death. And I'm sure that David played politics with the situation. I'm sure there was a nice write-up talking about Uriah's importance to the kingdom. And I'm sure they had a parade and a, and a, and a, and a, and a salute that was there for him. And there was a national funeral and the flags were at half-mast and his wife would have her period of mourning. But David, but the fact is Uriah's dead and David did it. The covenant king of Israel is acting in a ruthless, heartless way. There's no, there's no hesed or kindness or grace here. One guy said the same king that invited Mephibosheth to his table sent Uriah to his grave. There's a mixture in David's heart and it leads him in a bad place here. As good as he was, the kingdom is not safe in his hands. The kingdom will only be safe when Jesus comes. 
to bring a new kingdom of justice and righteousness. So let's, let's look at the end of the chapter, verse 26 and 27. It says, And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, you know, it doesn't call her Bathsheba again because I think it's trying to say that the one that is talking is connected to the Uriah that he murdered. He wants you to make that connection and feel the full weight of it. That this was a woman, but it was a woman who was married and her husband's been taken from her. The wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead and she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So as you see this close of this chapter and close of this section, David's sins presented very bluntly uh, without any kind of emotion. It's just, this is what happened. He was killed. His wife came. David brought her. She bore him a son. But you notice what it says. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Another translation of that might be that the thing that David had done is evil in the, in the Lord's eyes. Of course it was evil. It violated three of the Ten Commandments in, in one act. Do not covet. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. David, David's uh, committing multiple offenses right here. Now, earlier we skipped over verse 25, but let me just reference it because I think it's, it's instructive to us. David, after, after he receives word back from Joab that Uriah had died, David writes another letter back to Joab and says, hey, friend, do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. And, and he, he kind of tells Joab, it's almost like he's saying, Job, it's not your fault. You don't need to worry about this. Don't have any anxiety about what this happens. And what he says is, you know, in battle, people fall all the time. He's trying to excuse the behavior. He's trying to dismiss it. He's trying to say, don't let this bother you. Don't worry about it. This thing happens all the time. Don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. The problem is, notice how the chapter ends, but this thing was evil in the Lord's eyes. See, God saw God knew, and that's the thing that matters. Friends, you need to remember that the Lord always has the last word. The Lord always has the last word. There's a reason this is the last line in the chapter. Uh, our, our, your culture can justify your sin. Your roommates and teammates can justify your sin. Your coworkers can justify your sin. Your social media can justify sin. Your, your, your politicians, your professors, your celebrities can justify sin, but the Lord always has the last word. And if something is evil in the sight of the Lord, then it displeases the Lord. One writer said, David may have Bathsheba's, Bathsheba's flesh and Uriah's blood, but he will have to face Yahweh's eyes. You feel how personal that is? That, that all the things that you do, you can unravel all kinds of things, but at the end of the day, you're going to have to look at the Lord. And you're going to have to see in, into his eyes. And when the things that we do are evil in his eyes, there's no, there's no escape route. There's no way to excuse, dismiss, or dodge the gaze of the Lord. So what do we do with all this? It's pretty heavy stuff, right? I mean, you feel the weight of everything that, is, that this text is bringing on you. What do, what do we do with it? Um, well, friends, let's be honest. We don't run after sin because it's painful. We run after sin because it promises something wonderful. I mean, David, David didn't look at the end of the story and say, man, I need, I need more of displeasure of the Lord. David didn't begin and go, you know, I'd really like to do evil inside of the Lord. Let me jump over there. But there was a, a progression towards transgression that moved him in that, down that path. And eventually what we have to understand is that we run after sin because it promises something good. Now, maybe you grew up in a youth group. Any of you grew up in a youth group where they, they just portrayed sexuality, sin, any kind of, any kind of uh, 
kind of bad behavior as something that was dangerous and painful and was never fun. And like many of us grew up in places like that. You heard things like that. The problem was that every high school student and college student around knew that in the moment, sin can be really fun. They can actually feel good. There can actually be something enjoyable about it in the moment. Sin always begins with a thrill and a rush towards fun or, or at least a release from anger and anxiety and stress. At least it's, it's letting off some steam or it's doing some good. Otherwise, we wouldn't pursue it so wholeheartedly. It can feel fun in the moment. The problem is where it leads you later. That sin always leads us to a place of disappointment, a place of destruction, a place of loneliness, of brokenness, of hurt. Sin, sin always has a, is, is a train that brings other stuff with it. And so it promises fun in the moment, but it brings ruin along behind it. And friends, the fact is that we all have a proclivity towards sin. We all feel its pull. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. We sing. So maybe today you need to hear this truth. Every conviction of sin is an invitation to repentance. That maybe today you're sitting here and you're feeling the conviction of some sin. You're feeling the thing that you know, that, that you know when the, when the Lord looks at you, there's something displeasing in your life and there's a conviction of sin that, that God's working in you right now. And I promise I'm not reading your mail. I'm not like doing search engines on you. I just know we all have a proclivity towards sin. So we all have these spaces that we wander into where we shouldn't be. But every conviction of sin is also an invitation to repent to turn around, to, to begin anew, to start over. Every correction of sin is an invitation to come to Jesus. See, whenever you're going down a wrong path and something blocks you and turns you, there's an opportunity to either continue to run down the path that's going to lead to destruction or to turn around and move backwards and come to a place of trust. The grace of Christ is enough for your sin, but you have to name your sin and bring it to him. 1 John 1.9 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, there's forgiveness. That's always there. God's mercy and his grace is enough. But, but part of that restoration process is we have to bring it, and then we have to name it, and we have to give it up. Have you ever wondered why the Bible presents this incident in the life of David? Like you think of the way we do history in, in, in our country, a lot of times we, we take the, the really bad stuff in our history and we just kind of like, let me gloss over that. Let me just skip past that and move to something else because we want to elevate our heroes and it'd be really easy for them to say, you know what, let's just kind of sweep this under the rug and, and hide this. But, but the Bible doesn't. The Bible always presents it. It never candy coats the sins of its people. Why? Because it's important for us to realize that there's only one hero of the Bible who stands without blemish. His name's Jesus. That, that none of us will measure up to him. There's only one king who can fulfill this, and only Jesus stands unscathed. Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses as one who in every respect has been tempted just like we are, yet without sin. See, Jesus faced all the temptations that you and I faced, but he's the only one that, that pressed through unscathed. He's the only one who never fell. He's the only one who never went the way of David. It means for us that there's only one, one savior and one hero of the Bible. It's not you or me, it's Jesus. You know, there's a reason why we call it Christianity, Christianity, right? We don't call it Davidanity. 
We don't call it moses entity. We don't call it Abrahamity. Like we, it's, it's Christianity. And the reason it's Christianity because there's only one savior. There's only one who can be king. There's only one who will stand. There's only one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's the Lord. And it's because he's the one that walked through life without stumbling. And he's the only one. And that's why we exalt him. That's why we sing songs about him. And aren't you glad you have a savior named Christ who didn't fall? Aren't you glad for his grace? Aren't you glad that because he was righteous, that his, his righteousness can be given to you as, as a gift from God, that if you simply believe that God will take your unrighteousness and he put it on Jesus' back and Jesus carried it to the grave, he takes the righteousness that Christ earned through his perfect obedience and he places it on you and says, I will now see you as one who is righteous, not because of what you did, but because of what he did. And it's imputed to us. And so we can stand. So even when we've done evil in the, in the eyes of the Lord, the Lord looks on us and he says, I see the righteousness of my son Jesus in you. Come and be with me. And so there's restoration in relationship.